Our text this evening, we have two of them, will be first Genesis 1, 26 to 31, and then, as I said, Psalm 51, the first six verses of Psalm 51, Genesis 1, 26 to 31, and Psalm 51, the first six verses. We'll also be reading Lord's Day 3, that can be found on page 203 in your Forms and Prayers book, 203 in your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open up your word to us this evening, that we would be struck again by the the story of our origin, our origination, how we were created good and true according to your very image and of a great fall. We pray that in being confronted with the knowledge of our glorious beginnings of the fall and the hope of a new beginning, that we would all the more praise your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening we're going to begin with the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3. Question and answer 6 says, Did God create man so wicked and perverse? The answer is no. God created man good. And in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. We read the Heidelberg Catechism first so that we get sort of the lay of the land of where we're heading. And now we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read of our origination, our creation. Beginning Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. There we have the story of our origination, our birth, you could call it. And then we come to something far different in Psalm 51, much has transpired to lead us to this point. We'll read the first six verses of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That's where we will pause our reading of Psalm 51 as we simply read of that great fall that David himself describes, a fall into sin. Children love to hear the story of their birth. Now that's generally younger children. As children get older, they'll probably roll their eyes and say, do we have to go through this again? But younger kids love to hear the story of their birth. Their eyes light up at the story. And all the details just add to it. And they've heard it a million times, and yet they love it. And on their birthday, their father or their mother might say, Now, I remember when you were born, it was whatever. It was a cold night. It was a hot night. It was in the middle of the night. Whatever it is. And they just start smiling to hear of their birth. And then as they go on, what makes the story even better are all those details. Your, your mother was in so much pain, but she, she kept going. And, and even if there were complications, you see, that doesn't dim the excitement to hear it, to hear of the thing that had happened, but here's the story of their origin. It's exciting to hear. This is what kids love to hear. And in a sense, this is what this Lord's Day presents to us, certainly not the glowing birth story that we would desire, but it really does present sort of three origination stories. And the first is the origin of us at creation, how man was born, if you want to call it that, how Adam was created, the nature that we had had at creation. And then the next origination we see is the origination of our sinful nature, of our sin, and how it got all messed up. And then at the end, in the last little phrase of the last question and answer, we see a glimmer of hope and a potential for a new origin. A spiritual origin. And so what we see here is there, these are the origins of what happened. Seeing what happened, because as this Lord's Day 3 is progressing through the thought of the Heidelberg Catechism, we, we learned last time in Lord's Day 2 that we are miserable and unable to save ourselves, unable to keep the law that we cannot do. We can't obey. We can't be those to love perfectly. We fail. But then the logical question, and this is what the Heidelberg is doing, is to saying, why is that? How did it get that way? How did it, we end up unable to do these things? What's the story? And that's what this Lord's Day is answering. Where does that sinful nature come from and how far does it extend? What's our story of origin? And what we will see today is that this is a bit longer of a theme. I'm going to explain what I mean by this. And this is the whole point of the message. This is what I want us to see, what the Catechism is explaining, and along with our text from Psalm 51. Acknowledging our good origin at God's hand and sin's origin at man's hand allows us to proclaim with David that against God alone have we sinned and he is blameless in his words and judgment. That's a long theme. I want to explain what I mean there. Basically, that first part is just saying putting credit where credit's due, putting blame where blame is due allows us to do something. Finding the guilty party and the culprit for who messed this up, who messed man up, allows us to, along with David, as he did in that psalm, say that God alone, against him have we sinned, and that he is blameless in his words and judgment. You see, in a sense, what this is, is vindication of the Lord. Vindicating him of any wrongdoing. 
And what we'll see as we go through, it is imperative that what we do is understand we're at fault. It is imperative for us to put all the blame on us and none at the Lord's feet. We lose salvation if we get that wrong. We lose a righteous God. We lose a perfect being. And if we lose a righteous God and a perfect being, we have lost simply, one, the security of salvation. If he is able to sin, if he is able to do something wrong or evil, would he not be able to, to just pull out the, the rug from our feet, pull out the gospel, not keep his word, not keep his promises? If he wasn't righteous he, and he weren't good, he would not be the one to give us a perfect law. It couldn't even originate in him. We wouldn't have revelation. We wouldn't have understanding of what is right and true. If we put any blame on God, we've lost it. And thus we bear all the responsibility. That's what we'll see as we go through so that we can with David in David's great sin and in his brokenness have so much concern that he take all the blame. Against you, Lord, you alone have I sinned and done what is wrong so that you will be vindicated in your words and judgments for you do nothing wrong. Even in the punishments that you, that you convey against the sinners. Even the punishment that he brought against David himself was right and good. We must hold to this truth, and that's what the Heidelberg Catechism does. But there's also another thing going on here. So it's the vindication of God on the one hand, but as well it's an understanding of what we do with this knowledge. I've used this example before. I think this is a great example from God's Word and one that explains the Gospel really well, and one that explains our misery and why God even allowed us this sin that we, that we fell into, why he ordained it, I should say. And that is the story from Luke 7, where the woman, the sinning woman, comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears, anoints his feet. And what does the Lord say in response to this? It's that those who have been forgiven much love much. That's the other aspect of this Lord's Day. One, to see where the blame belongs, so that we might love much. To see that it all lies on us, so we can love God all the more. That's the goal as we walk through this Lord's Day and even see in our origination, our story, how God created us and it was created good. So the, the first part we begin with is the Heidelberg's explanation for what we were created. If they're answering that question, well, how did we get this sinful nature? Question answer six asks it, did God create man wicked and perverse? Was our origination and our failure at his hands? And the, and, and the answer of the catechism is no. God created man good and in his own image. That is in true righteousness and holiness. So that he might truly know God his creator. Love him with all his heart. And live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. The fault is not God's. God created man perfect and good in his image. What is the image of God? Catechism says it. It's in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In true righteousness and holiness. That's the narrowest definition of the image of God we can understand. It's broader than that. We bear God's image in other ways. But at its center, the most fundamental way in which we bear God's image is that we were created morally upright and good, holy like God himself, reflecting his very nature and character. And he didn't create Adam with a flaw. He didn't create him in such a way where by his creation, the Lord did something, put some sort of hidden switch in Adam that once flipped, Adam would fall. He didn't install a flaw in Adam. He created him good for his own nature. 
You see, God's intent with creation itself was that man be obedient. The intent of creation was that man obey and live forever. Now, when I say the intent of creation was that, what I am meaning is that was what God revealed to man. He created man with the ability to keep the law or with the ability to fall, meaning the ability to choose. Man was given the ability to choose. And what did God say? God told him the pathway to life is in following this dominion mandate, which we read, being obedient, not eating from this forbidden tree. That's what God had said. This is the path to life. He was up front. He gave man that understanding and knowledge. That was his intent. Now, what we don't mean is that God was surprised that Adam fell, as if his intent was thwarted. He revealed to Adam what must be done in the way to life, yet he did ordain Adam's fall. God's intent in the understanding of his his providential governance was that Adam would fall. That is what he ordained. And yet that wasn't the way he would have had Adam do it in the way he revealed it to Adam. His intent wasn't one to bring about sin. His intent wasn't one to, to undermine what Adam would do. And then it is important that we see that, to see that we were created in this way so that we would also understand how we were corrupted, how we fell. Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Have you ever thought, in reading Psalm 51, why David goes there? He's committed adultery and murder. And it's been a long time since he's confessed. It has gone on over a very long time. And Psalm 51 finally is David's repentance. And you would think what you would do is is just repent. I sinned. I committed adultery. I committed murder. Forgive me. Yet that's not where Adam goes. Not Adam, David. That's not where David goes. Rather, David goes all the way back to his conception his origination. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he does is he goes back to describe how bad he is, so that God would be more than amply justified in what he's doing, so that that David would be saying that all that God has done is just, because even the way I began, even in my birth, even in my conception, there was not one day when I had a holy nature it was spoiled. You see, what do we do when we face our own sin and misery? It's imperative that we do what David does as well, and that we're concerned all the blame be put on us. We are going to love the Lord much. We know we must be given much. We need to understand our state. We need to understand how Adam fell and what that meant to us. And we need to understand how sinful we are. What do we do when we're confronted with another lost battle to some sin? What do we do when we've lost another battle to lust or pornography? Or what do we do when we've lost another battle to, to fear of man and pride? What do we do when we lost another battle to gossip and we keep failing? 
What do we do when we care too much? What do others think? And what do we do when someone might critique us and we have so much fear of man that it keeps us up at night because someone made a comment against us because we value ourselves so much? I'm trying to just explain the range of sins. What do we do? I would submit to you we do what David did. We tell a story. And the story he tells is one of his sin and how full it is so that he can reach the end of the psalm the second half of the psalm, so he can reach the end, which is repentance, cleansing, so that he can put forward to God all that he has done in acknowledging his own blame, acknowledging what he had done. God's glorious design was not so. We see it exemplified in the saints. We're just using David as an example of it, but we see it happen all the way back in the garden when Adam fell. Where does the blame belong? It belongs with man belongs in Adam. God's glorious design was thwarted. The Canons of Dort in the third and fourth head of doctrine, Article 1, says that man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary or health-giving knowledge of his creator and things spiritual, in his will and heart with righteousness and in all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. Why does it matter to know this because you must understand the character of God to thwart false teachings. You must understand the character of God. Otherwise, as we began, you lose salvation itself. The blame isn't on God. It is on us. Can we explain the loss of this original state? Can we explain it to our satisfaction? Can we explain the origin of evil as we would like to? No, we can't. We can't understand fully how this all occurred. We have answers. We have definitions, we have parameters of what we can say, but we can't fully understand how this could be. We can't fully understand how God could have created a perfect human, and yet that this perfect human could fall. You see, to our understanding, we think, well, there had to have been some flaw in Adam, but there wasn't. And the answer to the question we have to give is that, well, it it lies, the answer to the origination of evil lies in the fact that man was created with a choice and the ability to choose. And the answer lies as well in the rebellion of Satan, which we don't know enough about to even comment. But with the temptation of Satan coming upon this righteous man, Adam and Eve, there was the capacity to fall, and they did. And none of the blame lies on God. It lies in man's own will, his own determination to choose what God had told him not to do. Again, do we understand the mechanics of that? No. And we're not supposed to. Those are questions that God's word doesn't reveal. And I think if it were to reveal it, we wouldn't be able to grasp. We have to be content with the fact that God is righteous. He created us in righteousness. And man sinned. Man fell. Our original birth was one of righteousness and being upright. But then we see our disastrous corruption. This is in question and answer 7. Our disastrous corruption. The origin of man's corrupt nature. This is also the doctrine of what we would call original sin. This is where it all began. Our parents, Adam and Eve, fell. That is the answer. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all, because all sinned. And then verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
What's the saying? It's saying we inherited a deprived, a depraved nature from our first parent, Adam. The origination of human nature was spoiled. Adam was the head of us all. We would all descend from him. And he spoiled his own human nature as our federal head and covenant representative. He failed, and so all his posterity fell as well in him. We are sinful due to that transmission. Transmission of sin from one generation to the other. Canons of Dort again in Head of Doctrine 3 and 4, Article 2, explains this transition. Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants except for Christ alone. Not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. What is this saying? It's saying, how did sin continue to spread? Well, it continued to spread through natural progression, through procreation, through having children. This is how the sinful nature continued to spread, by ordinary generation. We add that to say that those who were born of their fathers and their mothers had this same nature, were guilty in Adam, were polluted and corrupt in their own existence, as David said, conceived in sin, never a moment without it. But that is all those who are of ordinary generation, excluding Christ, who was not from ordinary generation, though from man, though from Eve, from Mary receiving that nature. Man's nature from Eve, yet not in the ordinary way and with the power of the Holy Spirit in that conception process that keeps him from this stain. Again, why does this matter? Why are we talking about all these things in these words? Because if we don't understand this, if we can't explain this, what do we say to those who, who combat the faith and say, well, why was God, why was Christ himself not sinful? He was a man. If, if we received this nature from, from generation, from our parents, why did, why did Christ himself, why did he remain perfect and pure? Well, it's because it wasn't through the ordinary way. It was through the seed of the woman, which had never, ever happened before that point, before Christ, and thus was preserved of the, the continuation of a sinful nature, thus was preserved from the original guilt of Adam's sin. Calvin says about this, about our fall in Adam, the Lord entrusted to Adam those gifts which he willed to be conferred upon human nature. Hence Adam, when he lost the gifts received, lost them not only for himself, but for us all. God gave to Adam great gifts, created him very well, and when Adam lost it, he lost it for all his children, those at least who were coming by ordinary generation. Corruption of our natures is so total it can't be washed away by any craft, by any knowledge or strength that we possess. Let's not lose sight of what we're trying to do here. What we're trying to understand is that God alone must be vindicated. And the reason he must be vindicated is that we would see our sin all the greater, all the more, our state all that more clearly so that we could love him all the more. That it would be that much more grand. That's why it's important to know these things, to know our corruption, to know how it's spread, so that we have that understanding, that we can appreciate what God does in redemption itself. And then the last question and answer we see, what is our, the totality of our depravity? But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes. 
Simple? Yes. And yet amidst this sad story, amidst this sad account of our originations, our births in these ways, comes the potential, comes the first hint in the Heidelberg of what is to come. Say first hint really in these two Lord's Days. Lord's Day 1 gets at it. But in the section on misery, the first hint of where we're going. That there is a birth by the Spirit. There is a glimmer of hope. At times we do see the sinful nature of man. We see it in its clarity. And we need to be brought to that way of hope. Man is not certainly as wicked as he could be. His total depravity doesn't mean he's as bad as what bad can get. God restrains that. But it does mean that as far as salvation is concerned, he's totally unable to do any good. He's totally unable to save himself. He's totally unable to please God in any way. And this clarifies then where the way of salvation must be found. Where then do we turn? We must turn to that glimmer of hope. Some of our deepest and most beautiful thoughts of our Lord come from the edge of sin's despair. Some of the greatest images of God, some of the most lovely experiences we've ever had of God, come from that edge of sin's sad despair. When we're crushed, as David was in Psalm 51, with guilt. When we're crushed with the knowledge of who we are, as conceived in sin, as left to ourselves totally unable to save ourselves, and then when we even see it, we're confronted with our failure yet again. And it's from that despair, from the acknowledgement of, yes, I did it again and failed, that we see the beauty of the hope of Christ himself. We move from the despair We move from taking that total responsibility for our sins. And that's where true peace will come. It doesn't come from trying to pass off the blame. You see, first you could try to pass off the blame on God. And that's what this Lord's Day is answering. The blame doesn't belong on God. Then we could try to pass off the blame on Adam and say, well, he was just our our representative and we fell in him. It's his fault. And what we say is we were just bystanders. How were we brought into this? And what David chose in this psalm is is that there was never a moment that we were these good little people. There was never a moment that we stood on the sidelines and then were dragged into this. We were conceived in this. From our earliest existence, we were greedy, lustful, angry, murderous little people. That's what it means. We can think, yeah, it's Adam's fault, but he was our representative. If we have a problem with Adam representing us, we've known this, we heard this last time, if we have a problem with Adam representing us, well, then we have no business having someone else like Christ represent us. It all lies in what David's saying in Psalm 51. Against God alone have we sinned, and it's totality, it's total. This is what we have done, and it's not on him, it is on us. And through that, we gain that great beautiful picture of the Lord. In J.R.R. Tolkien's great work, The Lord of the Rings, there's this quote. It's the burned hand that learns best. It's the burned hand that learns best. I would apply that to what we're doing here in this Lord's Day. 
the burned hand that learns of the Lord the best. It's the one that has seen and acknowledged the totality of our depravity that learns best the love of God. And that's where Psalm 51 turns. In verse 6 and beyond, we read where David then goes after acknowledging his sin. Verse 6 and following, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not our Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What I would say is from that psalm, you receive one of the most beautiful pictures of the Lord from the edge of sin's despair. And David's not just listing all of the attributes of the Lord, he's listing what he has done and what he has experienced in knowing sin and knowing misery and knowing corruption. And he sees that there is forgiveness. How beautiful it is, because all of these things that he's saying reflect on God, though he's not saying, this is what you are, God. He's saying, do this to me, God. And what is he saying to do? Purge me. Cleanse me. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And, and how can David say this? For, for close to a year, he has hidden and not repented from the fact that he committed adultery, that he murdered someone who was a loyal subject of his own and tried to hide it. And then on top of that, when the prophet Nathan comes to him, he, in self-righteousness, to his parable told, wants to condemn the man that would take this one sheep from the other person. And he is that man. The edge of sin's despair from the knowledge of depravity comes a picture of God that we, we relish. Urge me, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. We've all experienced that, haven't we? We're presented with just how bad, how sinful we still can be. And all what we want to hear is, I just want to hear joy again. I just want to be restored to the Lord. He continues, let the bones that you've broken rejoice. David, as far as we know, didn't experience broken bones. Literally, he's describing the turmoil of his heart and the grief that he bears in understanding that this sin all lies on him. And it's as if his body has been broken into a million pieces and he wants these bones to be, to be rejoined again and he knows that that can happen. Hide your face for my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. And then he goes one step further. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not our Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. It goes from an acknowledgment of the totality of his, his sin. He was born and conceived in this nature, inherited from Adam himself. He goes to a cleansing desire, and then he goes to a restoration that he would have with God himself. You see, that's what we got to see in these Lord's Days. That's the point. That's what the Catechism is doing. 
It's explaining that God is not at fault, but man is. It's explaining that man is corrupt, but that as it ends, are we so corrupt? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And in that, we are able to make the same confession David did. We are able to know that there is a reversal of this sin. We are brought back to God again. As children love to hear the story of their birth, we love to hear the story of our birth. We love to hear all of those details, even the painful ones, even the description of how bad we were, because it makes that end birth, that spiritual birth, so much more grand, so much more amazing to see the whole trajectory of what God has done from, our, from original creation and perfection and goodness to failure and depravity to regeneration in Christ. That's the story of our birth. As little kids, we love to hear that story. We have that smile on our face to hear what the Lord has done with us. To know that we have cleansing and purging and restoration in Christ himself. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we know as David proclaimed, we can say as well that each and every one of us was conceived and born in sin meaning we did not inherit any nature that was neutral, meaning that we came forth as sinners, guilty, and that the blame lies on us, the blame lies on humanity as a whole, and yet we see that there is the, the, repre- the, the, the progression, the giving of a, a spiritual birth, one that comes in Christ. We praise you for that truth. We ask, Lord, that at times, even when we sin, what you would do is use that sin to show us the great picture of your beauty, where we see on the edge of our failure the beauty of the gospel and of Christ's success. We ask that we would do that even with the doctrine of original sin, of total depravity, that all this does is highlight what Christ has done. And so we receive full forgiveness and faith in him. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.